You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 219 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Have you ever been to Spain? Spain is a wonderful country. I've been there many times, got family there, and I love it. Now, if you don't have anything better to do at the end of May of this year, 2019, why don't you attend the World Ayahuasca Conference, also called Aya 2019? Seriously, it is going to be awesome. Aya 2019 will be more than a conference. It will be the largest event ever held about ayahuasca. An event where the diverse ayahuasca community will come together to plant the seeds for a better future. And I invite you to join me in beautiful historic Girona, north of Barcelona, to celebrate the diversity of ayahuasca cultures, practices, art, film and research. Go to ayaconference.com, that's A-Y-A conference.com, to check it out. So why am I talking about this? Well, not only because I think it is a worthy event to talk about, not only because I am going to be there myself, but also because the founder and executive director of iSeers, the organization behind Aya 2019, is here as a guest on the podcast. His name is Benjamin Deloinen, and Benjamin has dedicated his life to making ayahuasca, iboga, and other psychedelic plant practices a valued and integrated part of society by founding ICEERS. And ICEERS stand for the International Center for Ethnobotanical Education, Research, and Service. ICEERS is a charitable non-profit organization with United Nations consultative status. Apart from being the founder, uh, Benjamin is also the executive director of ICEERS and the author of several publications and films. He has presented at conferences around the world and has participated in various leadership roles. But enough talking by me. Let's begin. So thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and, and what you do? Yes, my name is Benjamin, I'm the founder and director of an organization called ICEERS, or in very long, the International Center for Ethnobotanical Education, Research and Service. A complicated name, but basically it's an organization um, that uh, focuses on traditional plants like mostly ayahuasca and, and iboga as well and trying to kind of engage with the challenges of the globalization of this phenomenon uh, you know work around um, more issues related to the traditional cultures and also kind of the more the the way into uh, say modern day or the globalized society uh, we do that through research through policy work advocacy um, you know through uh, community um, building um, different levels and uh, engaging you know uh, 
also at the UN level and and more uh, towards policymakers. So it's it's a very broad, multidisciplinary work that we do, but all focused on on these traditional practices. The World Health Organization doesn't it has a good record in some aspects, but also a bad record of giving bad advice. But uh, do they listen to your suggestions for that? that these uh, plants can be very healing? Uh, well, I mean, the, the, I don't think the World Health Organization is very informed uh, about, um, you know, these uh, ayahuasca practices or, or iboga, where they might have information, but they haven't really pronounced very much about that. Uh, they recently, in terms of cannabis, they've uh, been examining, um, you know, uh, the um, kind of the, the status and uh, Kind of re-examining what the risks, what they consider the risks are, and the potential um, uh, benefits. Um, you know, and and also, I mean, they have a traditional medicine department. Um, you know, the question is whether recognition of something like uh, ayahuasca practice as a traditional medicine is is a positive thing or not. Uh, I don't have the answer, but it's something. One of the things we want to explore also at the World Ayahuasca Conference that's upcoming. Um, because also generally, when you talk about stand, or about um, you know traditional medicine, or you, you recognize it as, as traditional medicine, you're also talking about standardizing, you no? Know, and sometimes putting very diverse, uh, you know, culturally diverse practice into boxes, and very much limiting that richness um, through that process. Um, so you know, I don't know, but it's it's one of the roads to uh, to explore. I think generally there's still a lot of um, uh, either um, you know p- people in in policy positions they don't know about ayahuasca or iboga, or, or when they know about it there's a lot of misconception. Uh, one of the things we see is that uh, the you know there's kind of especially in the European Union and maybe also in in other parts of the world there's this uh, fear of uh, what they call the novel psychoactive substances or NPS which are spice, uh, you know, um, research chemicals, all these very new substances that are invented, uh, where there's no scientific evidence about its risks, its effects, and there's no history of human use. And what we see is that very often now they are putting these traditional plants, uh, like ayahuasca, peyote, salvia, that come from long um, human traditions, and they put them in that same category, you know. So that's one of the things we did, for example, is was go to the... Uh, European Monitoring Center for Drugs and Drug Addiction, the EMCDDA, and did a four-hour uh, training, uh, really explaining, contextualizing where these plants come from, why are they globalizing, why are people increasingly seeking experiences with with um, these plants, and what are the risks involved, but also what are the you know the opportunities in uh, in people seeking these experiences, no so. Uh, and to them, the whole discourse of what we were bringing was very new. They had you know, no knowledge about um, the whole background and the context. How well known are these plants these days? Because like both you and I are snowed in on these topics, but you know, the normal guy on the street who's just doing, living his life, do those people know about these or is it just like unknown still? Well, I guess it depends on the type of uh, people, no? But um, for sure, there's a very, very big increase in popularization of ayahuasca. Uh, and there's Hollywood movies that have incorporated ayahuasca in their storytelling. Uh, there's, you know, uh, influential people, artists, musicians, so far they've come out about um, their experiences with ayahuasca. Um, it's become 
uh, way more known than it was before, um, and that brings about you know certain challenges. Also, what we see is that this discourse around um, kind of the quick fix, no? Also around the boga, we we see that very much. On there's this the plant can you know it's ten years of psychotherapy in one night, no? Or the cure for addiction. Those things have also been accompanying um, the the globalization. And I think that's a problem because it can set false uh, expectations. It doesn't put the emphasis on the fact that it's hard work. It can be very challenging experiences. Um, and so, you know, I think also within that framework of uh, more people seeking more uh, natural approaches uh, to health and to uh, personal development or spiritual growth, uh, you know, all of that is growing. No? Before it was, you know, meditation, yoga, kind of, Ayahuasca has also come more in that sphere. Uh, and on the other hand, also, obviously, there's the religions, the ayahuasca religions that already since longer have been spreading around the world, getting more members, where ayahuasca is used as a, a sacrament. Um, and what we also see, obviously, is the kind of the, the psychedelic renaissance, you know, which is very much ongoing, uh, a lot around psilocybin, which now is uh, in phase three research, uh, psilocybin for, for the treatment of depression, you know, kind of the, it's a medicalization of psychedelics that's going on, which is advancing very much. It's taking away a lot of the fear uh, of the, the general public. Um, and, you know, I think you know, there's a big opportunity also in, in that because many people who have challenges with post-traumatic stress or depression or addiction or other issues will have access to these um, compounds. But I think also it's important to realize that, um, you know, medicalizing uh, cultural practices can also be very limiting uh, and put the authority of use in hospital settings and, you know, um, uh, say Western um, medical uh, professionals. And I think it's important that we recognize traditional systems of use like indigenous lineages or spiritual traditions and make sure that they become also accommodated um, legally, um, you know, in in uh, in society. So that's one of the important focuses of our work at ICERS, and also what we will discuss uh, extensively at the conference. So uh, I understand you're from Holland, but it's ICERS based in Spain. Uh, no, I'm actually Belgian. Oh, Belgian. Uh, yeah, so but um, I started ICERS in Holland um, when I was a film student in uh, at uh, the uh, film school in, in Utrecht, and so I've I finished my school with um, a film on Iboga. It's called Ibogaine Rite of Passage, and that was kind of what led to you know starting ICERS several years later in Holland. But then, kind of organically, um, as you know, the organization grew, uh, our activity, or the people, the team started to form more in in Spain. So our, our office is in, in Barcelona, and we have, you know, we're officially established in both countries, in in Holland and and in Spain, in Barcelona. So, uh, when was it you made this uh, Iboga film? Uh, the, I started making the film in two thousand one. Uh, it was finished in two thousand four. And then, you know, since then, you know, kind of organically, I became, um, you know, a, a public speaker about Ibogaine uh, with the film, you know, so first showing films at uh, film festivals and then, 
you know, the people invited me to go and show it at, say, psychiatric uh, conferences or, or different harm reduction drug policy conferences. And then I started to add a presentation, a PowerPoint presentation after the film to go deeper into some of the scientific elements or, or policy elements. Um, so, you know, kind of all of that has grown over the years in, in becoming an, uh, a nonprofit organization. Uh, ISIS was officially started uh, in um, uh, 2009. That's when it was established. So next this year, actually in May, during the conference, we will celebrate our 10th anniversary. It's hard to say, but uh, I've been trying to keep my finger on the pulse of how all these plans are perceived by the public. And I would say that around 2008, 2009, Ayahuasca started to reach uh, the whole world and then it's been growing ever since. But I would say that Iboga is still fairly underground even amongst the psychedelic uh, proponents. So you were very early discovering uh, Iboga, uh, if it was al already way back in 2001. So how did you stumble upon that? Uh, yeah, well, I think ayahuasca is already, say in Spain, for example, ayahuasca has already been used here for about 25 years, I think. So it's been ongoing. I mean, the, the globalization of ayahuasca has been ongoing since since quite a time already. Uh, it's in the last years where really it has gone up, um, you know, drastically. Uh, with the boga, um, you know, I mean, um, I, I read a small article. There was not much information, as you say, about it in, in 2001. It was very much of an underground community, a small community. Uh, I got into that community after reading a small article in a in a book about it, and I got interested, and I thought that if, if it's true that Iboga comes from, you know, an Africa tradition, uh, you know, where it's sacred for, for the people in, in those uh, communities, and then, you know, has been uh, discovered by Howard Lotsoff uh, in the 60s as being, uh, as helping overcome addiction and blocking withdrawal and so forth. Uh, you know, I thought that's that's a pretty amazing story, you know. And then also the whole issue around uh, drug addiction and, and treatment and pharmaceutical interests and so forth. So I started to dig into it and very quickly I got, uh, you know, close to Howard Lotsoff and many other people in, in that community. At that time, we pretty much knew everybody involved, uh, which now is not the case anymore. So Iboga has, has grown as well. And I think now it's going to grow uh, significantly because of um, also the opioid epidemic. There's a bigger need, um, you know, but it's it's far away from kind of the popularity of, of ayahuasca. I think also it has to do with the fact that uh, to have an experience with Iboga is very expensive. It's a very long process. It's, you know, more difficult medicine. There's more health risks involved. Um, you know, so I think, you know, it's more difficult to have access to it, no, and, and to find places. And it's been also, it came to the, um, you know, to the, to the cities uh, here, say, in, you know, in the U.S. and, and elsewhere, uh, through discovery for its anti-addictive properties, no, and and so it has been for very long been part of an underground um, medical subculture, uh, very focused on addiction treatment, and it's also now more recently that we see uh, it's it's gaining popularity more in the um, you know in the uh, the communities of people seeking more psycho-spiritual growth, also with ayahuasca, you know, um, bufo and iboga has become part of that. Um, 
You know, and, and also again with that, you know, there's certain worries because with Iboga there's uh, important issues around sustainability. In in uh, in Gabon, it, you know, the the production and the, the plants grow in a very small territory, small country, uh, and if you know, and alternatives need to be developed and sustainable models for growing in, in Gabon, you know, to really meet the market demands if this is going to grow further. And there's already, from what it seems, uh, quite some damage done, done on ground. So it's, you know, it's complicated. It's a, it's a very complicated phenomenon. When I was in Gabon doing my own Iboga initiation, I actually, uh, where I was staying, uh, there was a, another couple there who, that I got to know. I didn't stay in touch with them, but I was checking your website recently uh, just before I was ca- we called and I noticed that uh, that couple I mean the husband used to be the president of ICERS it was mass small world exactly so the so you were initiated in in Mitone with uh... no I was uh, it was at Abando they were there hanging around you know yes yeah, we so when I made the film, I filmed in a, a village called Mitone, which is where they were initiated. Uh, so actually, they made that happen. They 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 really made the introduction and did all the preparatory work for the the community to accept our our filming there. Uh, and Tatayo, who's the head of Ebando, was uh, our guide during the the process. He was driving with us to the village and he was accompanying us. Um, yeah, it was a pretty, you know, intense and very magical experience. I, I, I'm not initiated myself in, in Gabon, um, but we we filmed the whole process, five-day uh, women's initiation. And, you know, for me, the thing that stood out most was the incredible value of community support, you know, um, uh, where just sometimes 30 people, the whole community was accompanying this one person going through her rite of passage. That's something we generally don't see uh, in our uh, society here. When people have issues, they become disintegrated or addicted or whatever the, the issue is. The you know very often, specifically with addiction, there's they're isolated, they're stigmatized, and there it's the opposite. People are accompanied and they're welcomed back, you know, integrated back in the community. And that was just very amazing to see how, how that whole process uh, played out. Yeah, I had a feeling some of them traveled far and wide to like come to this ceremony. And uh, I was doing mine and then my friends were doing theirs. So I was watching other people do their ceremony. And some of the participants said afterwards that, oh, I re- this was one of the best ceremonies. I mean, they were just there dancing and hanging out. So it was fun to see it's like a party around the healing you know yeah it's a it's a celebration well it's you know for me it's not just uh, hanging around and dancing it's really they all are contributing to the the environment to the to the moment the witnessing you know they they're all witnessing really this you know the initiate uh, going through the process you know and and supporting and holding the container for that whole process to unfold um you know so and the the initiation i filmed there was you know, this whole group of, I mean, obviously there was the Nganga, no? the, say the, what we would call shaman, and then the spiritual father and mother, and there was a whole core group of women with very active roles over the whole five days. And then musicians, as you say, some just came from abroad to play music during the ceremony. Uh, to some musicians, that's their work, no? they go from ceremony to ceremony to a company and, and play the music. But they all worked hard. They slept very little, and you know it was 
was intense. Just only f all of that for one person. Um, you know, it's ritualistically, it's just for me the the richest um, ritual process I've I've witnessed. I there was one woman who f fell in. She wasn't doing the initiation. She was just there dancing, but she entered a trance state and started like shaking and like. Uh, like you see in almost those like Christian revival churches when somebody's like goes into trance, uh, similar to that. And uh, so, it was, and she said also afterwards that she, because the person who had been eating the iboga, she just connected with whatever she was going through. Yeah. Also, when I was filming in my documentary, actually, you can see um, some of the women. One woman is holding the tree they plant in front of the you know, the temple where they do the initiation, which holds the space of the spirit of the initiate. Uh, and she also was in, a, she's in a position trance when she's holding that tree. Um, you know, it's, the the other interesting thing is, um, and this, you know, I, I made uh, several years after, pretty recently, I, a few years ago, I made a new doc documentary, but with the old material, with the, only the Gabonese material that I filmed in 2003. Uh, a new documentary called Experience Buiti, uh, and it's it's more of an anthropological film, 40 minutes, where you see the whole ritual from beginning to the end with a voiceover, which was actually written by Uamas and and uh, sister, um, his wife, who were initiated. So they explain what's what's going on, and they describe, you know, they explain about the possession trances, no, and how really the initiate needs to learn how to master the possession trance. So at some point when she's in trance, she needs to hold fire and she needs to learn how not to burn herself or, uh, you know, do certain tasks while being in this trance to really master that state. And so also sometimes people who fall into involuntary possession trances, they need to be initiated because that's the way how they learn to really control that and to channel that in a, in a constructive way. And after they're initiated, generally they're not initiated again. It's just a one, once a lifetime opportunity. Uh, but then it's by continue to practice Bwiti um, that they still can access these trance states, um, you know, and generally they, when they participate, obviously they also uh, take Iboga, but in very small quantities, like we also had to do when we were filming. Um, but, you know, it's, it's interesting how the trance state for women is very much part of the, um, of the, the process of learning uh, through the ceremony. Before my ceremony, with my friend happened, Uwe Maas said that he was considering maybe uh, doing the work of helping people who had gone through a ceremony because they always need help afterwards, like support. And then we had our ceremony and I was fine. I, I took like a day or two and then I was back to my old self. But my friend, he <laughs> it took him like weeks and he, he really had a rough landing, so to say, and uh, after a few days, uh, Uwe Maas said, trying to help my friend, he said, oh, I don't think that is what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> he like, it was almost like the Iboga show, okay, you think you can be support support to people who gone through it? And then they, he gave, the Iboga gave him a really hard patience, you know. So, uh, but Uwe Maas said he, he would use his skills in other ways, you know. And I've... I've also had those thoughts. Uh, I remember like, well, maybe I should like facilitate c these kinds of ceremonies. But then uh, having sat in ceremonies, I'm talking about ayahuasca now, and seen some hard things go on, 
I'm thinking like, no, 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 I don't don't want this responsibility. It's very difficult and it's better someone else does it. It's not something I could ever do, you know. I have the same feeling. You know, I don't have that ambition. And I think, you know, it's, it's good to realize that because it's very easy to give a cup of ayahuasca to somebody, but it's very difficult to, to you know, act properly when things get difficult, no? and when people enter very challenging uh, experiences. Uh, we have at our foundation um, uh, my colleague Mark, uh, who has been uh, offering support to people, psychological support, uh, since 2013. Uh, and we see some of the, you know, the kind of the dark side no, of the th people that are not properly attended um, or the uh, challenging experiences and just didn't have the safety container or they weren't properly prepared or informed before. And then eventually come to us, some really in distress, you know, some in having um, adverse situations. Um, and it's a, big, it's a big responsibility. It's, you know, it's potentially life-changing. So I think also even, you know, recommending this to somebody, you know, we never do that in, in ICERS, uh, recommending people to have experiences. It really, I think, should be uh, something people feel drawn to and are seriously um you know considering and the decisions should always really be made by the person and not under you know and not on behalf of a family member in for example where you see sometimes with iboga no it's the parents who want the child to have an iboga treatment for addiction but if the if the child doesn't really want it and doesn't really choose for it it can be a very challenging experience that they and they can easily also blame those who have, um, you know, invited them or stimulated them to do it as, as the, the cause of all the distress during the experience. So, you know, how do you recommend something which is potentially changing somebody's life? No? And I think that's, that's also one of the rules in the, in, um, the daime um, for, for ayahuasca. Kind of the door is open to people who want to join, uh, but they cannot proselytize. They cannot, um, you know, say... Uh, I think this, you know, drinking ayahuasca would be good for you. People can share their own experiences, but then if other people decide that it's maybe good for them, that really is is on their um, behalf. And I think that's a healthy uh, mentality to have, no? Because uh, the end, it are very personal experiences, and uh, people can have the most transformative experiences, but that doesn't mean that the same would happen if, if their family member or friend would would have. Um, you know, have a, a same, uh, do the same uh, ceremony. So I've been working with these uh, plants for 10 years and with many years of breaks in between, so not constantly, of course. But uh, in the beginning, I was, I was like, everybody should try this. But now, 10 years later, I'm more, if somebody says something about it, I'm, I'm, I'm more like, are you sure? <laughs> you know, like... I've gone from because it's so amazing when you first experience it. You like want to call the BBC or CNN and like. <laughs> yes, and you know it's been a journey also for me, you know, and um, and my journey really started not through a personal experience, but through observing people who were in distress with the you know drug dependency issues, uh, filming my my documentary, and seeing how their life was. Uh, you know, transformed and how they really opened up after the boga. And, you know, it's for me that just seeing that and the human suffering and how these plants could play a role in that was what really motivated me to get going uh, with, with ICS. Um, 
but uh, but you know then the the personal experiences later obviously they they're really you know the, it's kind of the enchantment almost in being like wow you know this is so much potential there you know the very profound mystical or transformative or, or healing experiences that one has and then as time evolves you, you also start seeing really the nuances and the different factors at play and and yeah, and also kind of really going also to the shift from you know this this can save the world to, you know, this is a tremendous potential, but, you know, are you sure if you're going to do it and be prepared and, you know, do your due diligence if you're going to look for a, a center to to have an experience and really, you know, make the responsible decisions because um, there's there's a lot of chance, you know, it's, it's very easy to find an ayahuasca ceremony, for example, you just go online and you Google it. But it's not, you know, it's not so easy to really find responsible settings. And so, how how do you uh, do your research and do the pre work to make sure you end up in in good hands and with the right preparation? And also, you know, I, I think these plans are not for everybody, but they're also not for everybody in every moment in their life. No. Um, so sometimes people maybe are not ready for something like that or, you know, there's, but, but maybe in a few years after different works, they really come to the moment where, yes, this can be very uh, positive uh, in their life path. I only do it if I feel, uh, well, uh, it's like taking a course in the university, you know, like you need another course. But now I've felt I've reached a point that, okay, I know what I need to do with my life. I, so now I just, I can do the rest on my own. It's helped me to reach that point. You know, I, I can drive the car myself. <laughs> and that's different to different people. No? For some, ayahuasca is a spiritual path and they drink ayahuasca two times a month within a religious tradition, for example, uh, where it's really, it's like, you know, it's going praying and, and having the, maintaining and cultivating that spiritual connection. Uh, to others, it's more like you say, it's more of a, you know, it's an experience which kind of, you know, provides new perspectives on aspects of life or, or, you know, provides healing in certain ways. And that all of that input and information and experience needs to be integrated and, and gets, you know, to really uh, create a lasting benefit in, in day to day. Um, and then the need or the, the feeling that, you know, another ceremony could serve uh, might come or might not come. There's also the risk, which is the other side, where people might have uh, kind of spiritual bypassing, no? where uh, it becomes, there's this feeling of like when, when I, you know, the more I drink ayahuasca, the better I will become, the more spiritually awake, uh, awakened I will become. But then really in forgetting to put the work, um, you know, in, in practice in daily life, no, and, and having that benefit, and instead, kind of uh, moving away from f facing facing issues that people might um, might have in their daily life. Uh, so there's, and that's not just with with ayahuasca; that can be with other spiritual practices or, you know, esoteric, um, you know, courses, you know, whatever that might be. So, I think it's it's crucial that you know we. Within indigenous communities, it's very obvious that the integration of the experience is, is living in the community because it's the, the whole practice is integrated in the community. So you, you don't really need to integrate the experience itself in a, in a set up way like with a therapist or whatever, because it's just part of that whole culture. But it's, that's not the case with our culture. No? And 
And so there's been this now more and more you hear about integration services. Um, you know, and as I said, we have been doing this since 2013. And, and I think as the fear goes away and, and this becomes more integrated and, and valued in our society, uh, it will, the practice itself will also be more integrated. But I think we're far, very far away from that uh, at this point. There's a lot of work to be done. Yeah, and, uh, and as for ayahuasca, it's always part of my life, even though it might be years between I drink, the, drink it, because I always listen to the Icaros, and I always think about it, so it's always present. It's just I don't need to drink it. I can drink it mentally anyway, you know, like through memory or listening to those medicine songs. Yeah, and mystic, I mean, a, a mystical experience where you feel that everything is connected, you know, for the first time, you know that obviously that will have a lasting impact on somebody, and hopefully that will also, you know, the shift worldview enough to care enough about the, the environment, about people around, you know, about the kind of the the larger context of of humanity. Um, and then there's also very practical things that people sometimes get uh, out of experiences, you know, more awareness about uh, lifestyles that needs to be changed or, you know, stress about different things. Um, so there's, you know, experiences can have very different teachings or, um, you know, depths as well in terms of, of, of the content that can come out or the processes that people go through. And some are, have a very direct practical impact on decision making and, and lifestyle, and others might be really kind of you know shifting uh, the worldview and, and and really having a, a very very powerful impact on somebody's life. Which you know the integration of that can be ongoing, you know, for many years. Does ICS have anything to do with the Ayahuasca Defense Fund? Uh, yes, the, actually, the Ayahuasca Defense Fund is a is a program of ICS. Uh, which was started because in 2010, for the first time, we got in touch with um, an ayahuasca center in Chile. who were working, the, it was called Manto Wasi. They were working, uh, and they still exist, they, they were working in um, traditional, you know, Peruvian um, ayahuasca ceremonies, but accompanied with psychotherapy before and after. And they had a raid during the ceremony. Luckily, the police fell in right before the people drank their cup because it was a police woman infiltrated. And then, uh, you know, several year uh, legal process started and we got contacted by several people to ask for help. So we got in touch with uh, people there and they really, you know, were brave to fight until the end. They had great lawyers and we kind of collaborated in, in that process, which had a very good outcome. Uh, and then, because I'm a filmmaker, we, we filmed the process, which now has turned into a documentary. But at the time, we've just filmed, a, made a trailer about the story. We put it online, and that's when other people started to contact us, uh, looking for legal uh, advice. And it was just when it was like kind of in 2010, when legal uh, uh, prosecution was really on the rise uh, in Spain, a country where there had been maybe one case before. There was one incident after the other. Uh, so for several years, we we were assisting and really connecting the dots, no? connecting, uh, the translating knowledge uh, that we obtained from strategies that were developed for certain cases in one part of the world and then bringing that knowledge and experience to other court cases, uh, working with the legal teams. No? 
And then at some point in 2014, because we saw that there was a very significant increase in legal um, incidents and, you know, the challenges were just on the rise, we decided to organize the first World Ayahuasca Conference, which was held in Ibiza in Spain. And that's where we, we uh, gathered a lot of the lawyers we had um, uh, worked with, uh, you know, and, and, and people from different countries. And so we brought them together. And that's when an expert committee was uh, formed. Uh, and, you know, basically over the course of two, two years, that's when we set up the Ayahuasca Defense Fund, which was a continuation of the work we were already doing. But it was kind of we professionalized that service, no? And so now we have uh, my colleague Natalia. She's the um, she's our in-house lawyer and the coordinator of the Ayahuasca Defense Fund. Uh, and we have a steering committee with several uh, people, academics, uh, lawyers, you know, um, legal strategists. And then we have a whole expert committee attached to that, which are all you know policy experts, lawyers, and so forth. So we've been building our network internationally. Um, and, you know, we've been involved since the beginning, 2010, more than 100 cases now, uh, you know, until different degrees. Uh, with some cases, we've been really full on accompanying the whole process. And it's been very rewarding, sometimes also frustrating because, you know, you, you have a good outcome with one case and then the next one comes in. But as, as I see, you know, legal defense is a is a moment where all of the disciplines that we work around come together no? because you bring in the science uh, you you really try to break the ignorance around it and the the very reductionistic uh, vision that the prosecutor always brings about this is just an excuse to drink dmt and you know the discourse that these people have around nature and shamanism and all of that is is fake you know they basically just want to drug people and and make money you know that's always the frame that the, the prosecutor brings to the table. And, and then we really try to, you know, break that and educate, really, it's an opportunity for education on uh, the judges, sometimes the media that covers the case, and sometimes people in embassies that are related to countries of origin of the people. And really contextualizing, you know, bringing uh, more knowledge about the fact that these are practices that have been ongoing for way before the drug control system game came into place. These are practices that have been, uh, you know, significant contribution to communities in different parts of the world for a long time. And in the process of globalization, obviously, you have challenges, you have issues, you have malpractice, you have unethical situations. But, uh, you know, saying that this is just an excuse to you know, to uh, take um, an illegal molecule, that's, you know, that's really highly reductionistic and problematic. And very often also they claim that there's no science, that we don't know anything about the, the safety. But the reality is that there's more than 15 years of uh, research, a lot of clinical research uh, into the risks, you know, the, the effects uh, of ayahuasca on the body. And, you know, we see that the, the risk profile is very acceptable. Um, you know, physiologically, there's, the, there's a slight increase in heart rate and blood pressure, but it's, it's really mild and, you know, not problematic if you don't have serious uh, pre-existing conditions. Um, you know, and, and everything, we know a lot about really the safety profile of, of ayahuasca. And so we often bring all of that also in. And it's, it's logical, you know, I totally understand that policymakers, uh, I mean, um, judges are worried that if they uh, acquit the, the the person, the accused, 
that they in a way give the signal like this is okay we you know we think this practice is is okay and, and not illegal uh, so they always are worried about public health and you know what's and really want to know what this really is so we notice that when my colleagues go to court uh, cases as expert witnesses or other experts go the judges really listen to that and they they really they're not very used to have somebody in front with a you know um this uh see people symbols on their clothes or you know the discourse about spiritual growth it's not generally what they have in front of them um so that's yeah that's been an interesting journey which is we which we continue to do and we you know we're serving currently different cases around the world it's funny that they uh, say that it's an excuse because you couldn't pay me to drink i was if like like if somebody told me like you get a thousand euros if you drink it tomorrow, I said you can forget about that. I'm not drinking it tomorrow. You know. <laughs> yes, and you know it's but that's because there's a lot of uh, you know if you try to frame ayahuasca ceremonies in ceremonies in in this classical context of drug of abuse, no, and and you need ayahuasca to have the desired effects and and you know the fact that uh, you know people kind of get hooked or or feel better because. You know, there's this reward system that's activated, and that's why people feel better. You know, saying that people actually might go through a pretty tough time during the experience and then feel better afterwards because they've dealt with internal things. You know, th those are very different discourses than what they generally hear. No, and so I, I generally think there's, you know, very often there's a lot of just ignorance or lack of information in those cases. And when when they are properly framed and and defended, you know, the judges often change their opinions and and don't see it as just yet another drug dealer that's you know trying to make a bunch of money. Um, although sometimes that that happens as well. No, there's mm -hmm. countries where it's complicated. Um, Russia, more the most, there's people who have been uh, sentenced to eleven and a half years. One case. Uh, you know, for ayahuasca, just seeing it as yet another drug dealer endangering public health. Um, yeah, I've donated to it in the past. There was one time a uh, a maestro that I actually knew myself that got caught when he was in Europe. Um, but um, you have this conference. Uh, you don't have it every year. Why? Why? Why not? No, because for us, a conference is an instrument for uh, achieving social change. Uh, it's not a goal in itself. So we don't say, oh, let's do a conference every year, every two years. Uh, we'd, we have been deciding to organize the conference when we felt it was needed. And every conference has had a different focus uh, and objectives. Uh, as I said, the first one was very much uh, focused on the challenges of the, of the globalization and a lot with, um, you know, the the kind of legal aspects of it, but also other aspects, no ethics, uh, safety, you know. So there was a lot of panels discussing that, and we really also tried to bridge the the policy reform movement with the ayahuasca world, uh, which was funny because when we were talking to people in the in the drug policy reform uh, movement, many of them were like, yeah, but you know, ayahuasca is for this. It's very you know strange thing for a minority, and you know we're not really interested. Uh, and then many people in the ayahuasca movement say like, yeah, but ayahuasca is not a drug, you know. So why would you connect those those two? But the reality is that the you know arrests were going up uh, significantly. 
you know, it's by the drug control systems, they easily understand it as, as being an illegal drug. Uh, and, and ayahuasca is growing very much. So that's also what the policy uh, side of, you know, the community saw. And when we brought them together at the conference, it really, I think a lot of, uh, it sparked a lot of uh, interest um, and, and also the, uh, the awareness that, you know, expertise from both sides could really come together, which the Ayahuasca Defense Fund is an example of, uh, of a lasting impact of that conference. Um, then the second one we did in Rio Branco in, in Brazil, in Acre, which is the home of the ayahuasca religions, uh, you know, the UDV, uh, Barquinha and Santo Daime, they, they all come from there. And obviously there's a lot of indigenous communities in that area as well that, that all uh, drink ayahuasca. They all have their own name for, for, the, for the brew. Uh, and there, the, really, we, we felt it was needed to kind of bring the international debate and the, the awareness that it's an international phenomenon. You know, it's not something strange that's just only found in the remote, remote corners of the Amazon. So we felt it was very important to bring that international discussion to the, um, you know, the hometown of these, these practices. Uh, and really connect to the, the traditions, to the indigenous peoples and to the, um, the religions there. So that's what we did. No, it was a six day conference. It was, you know, it was very, it was a bit like a six day ayahuasca experience with, um, you know, ups and downs. And also a lot of the underlying disagreements and conflict came, came up and working through that and trying to find common grounds and understand the perspectives and where different people uh, come from. You know, because ayahuasca is different things to different people. No, as I said, it's a sacrament to some, it's a medicine to others. Uh, you know, it's a it's, it's a it's a tool for for community cohesion uh, and you know survival for many indigenous communities. So having all of that come together with this international uh, you know debate and and phenomena that that was just you know for me one of the richest cultural experiences I've I've had in in my uh, career so far. We did a dialogue about the, the possibility of, um, you know, trying to work towards uh, recognition of uh, cultural patrimony of ayahuasca practice internationally. So we invited experts, representatives from cultural ministries, from the countries of origin, different indigenous representatives, representatives of the religions. Uh, and it was a very heated meeting. It was very rich at the same time. No? And we realized halfway through that uh, many of the indigenous peoples didn't, uh, you know, know the the, uh, the concept of cultural patrimony. Thought we were talking about patenting, so it was also part of explaining what those mechanisms are, um, you know, of cultural patrimony protection. And like that, there was a lot of, um, you know, sharing perspectives and really very very diverse perspectives coming together, providing more awareness of the the communities uh, locally about what's really going on internationally. And at the same time, also, uh, you know, the international community learning very much from from the traditions that have been, you know, they've successfully integrated these um, practices in their communities for for long. Uh, so that that was in 2016, and then now it's three years later. Um, we we have, we decided to embark on on this next um, episode, which is uh, in Girona, so back in Spain close to our, our office, um, it's just 40 minutes north of, of Barcelona. And our focus now is more, it's the, the subtitle is an inner search for a better world. Um, 
you know, which is really looking at how, you know, kind of the medicalization and the, and the psychedelic renaissance is very much about a personal uh, growth or personal healing. But really, you know, we want to also put more emphasis on the, on the community aspects of it, on how ayahuasca has been key for community health and survival and, and well-being, both in indigenous uh, environments, but also, you know, modern day community settings. And I think in, I was just reading an article yesterday about community and the lack of community that we have a real true community, you know, where uh, we feel social support. We don't feel socially poor, but really connected. Um, and so that's a big important part we want to bring to the to the dialogue and to the table at this this event and then also kind of making the connection more to the collective benefit you know there's climate change movements there's amazonian conservation now with bolsonaro in in brazil you know the indigenous communities they are really under threat the amazon is basically sold to the agricultural um or, or the um, you know the the, the lobby uh, and, you know, and their uh, risks to be all cut down and changed for palm uh, plantations. Uh, and a lot of, you know, movement there is obviously inspired by, by uh, ayahuasca no? and a lot of the, the work of the indigenous communities in protecting those natural reserves. You know, ayahuasca plays an important role in that. So we want to give visibility to that no? and how we can really move from personal in, internal kind of uh, healing and, and transformational experience to really becoming in service of, of the collective good of humanity and and taking a bit better care of, the, of the, the natural world because if we don't do so you know even probably the next generation already is gonna suffer you know incredibly from from climate change to begin with um, and the mental health crisis so and the other piece we're going we're gonna to add also, also this time, we had some art in the last ones, but we now have a curated, you know, very big art program with a, a lot of, there's going to be 10 original Pablo Amaringo paintings uh, there. And there's going to be many visionary indigenous arts exposing their work. So we also want to give visibility more to the, uh, the artistic and the, the cultural expression uh, that's linked to the ayahuasca culture. And really celebrate that, no? And and so there's going to be a pretty rich um, cultural program around the conference as well. There's also a very impressive list of uh, speakers, I would say. So I'm sure many people could at least find one or two that they are into. Yes, yeah. This we've been pretty ambitious for this uh, event. We've about 40 invited speakers. Uh, some key names are, you know, Wade Davis is going to do the opening keynote. Um, you know, there's Dennis McKenna, there's uh, uh, Claudio Naranjo is coming as well this time, which we're very happy with because he's, he's very old. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, his knowledge, um, you know, is also putting it in the framework of kind of our more societal issues uh, is going to be very welcome. But also this time we have the, you know, executive director of Amazon Watch, um, you know, the, uh, one of their board members who uh, was the founder and she started the project called the Sacred Headwaters, which is, you know, seeking to align many organizations to protect uh, parts of the Amazon. We have thought leaders, um, you know, researchers uh, talking about the latest research uh, and a lot of indigenous people. We have invited a whole uh, indigenous committee. We've been working on this for, for months now uh, from the different countries of origin. And these are both, um, you know, curanderos, people with a lot of experience and knowledge in terms of the practical application of 
of ayahuasca in the, in the culture, but also uh, representatives of some of the, the, the important indigenous organizations are coming. And, and we have been also reaching out to, you know, policymakers and, you know, people we think should be there and really learn and understand more the scope of, of what's going on with, with ayahuasca. Um, so, yeah, so it's a very uh, rich program. And then aside of that, we, we uh, just closed the call for abstracts with about 160 um, uh, submissions, which is really a lot. So we're selecting the 100 best um, you know, a presentation, and there's also pretty big names in those who have applied as well. So, actually, you know, there's what's on the program or on the website now is just a fraction of really what's going to happen there. And this, in the coming week, we're going to start publishing all of all of that content. But um, yeah, we're very happy with uh, with how things are shaping up. The diversity, you know, we have a lot of there's a lot of new research as well. So a lot of that is going to be presented, but also you know. Ex- uh, initiatives around community work where ayahuasca has been central. Um, you know, there's going to be very diverse uh, for different audiences. And also my personal favorite uh, anthropologist and author, Jeremy Norby. Yes, yeah, he's coming as well and give a, a presentation on the third day. If people want to go there, how can they uh, do that? Uh, the website is ayaconference.com. Um and so there's information there, but as I said, uh, there's going to be much more coming this uh, coming week. Uh, we also have a page on, on Facebook. If you uh, look up World Ayahuasca Conference on, on Facebook or Aya Conference, you will, you will find it. Uh, so there's very regular updates there. Um, and yeah, Girona is a very accessible city. The, you know, the first edition was in Ibiza, which is pretty accessible, but still it's an island. The, the next one, uh, you know, in, in Rio Branco was very accessible to the locals, but for people from abroad, it was, you know, three planes. I got stuck in the way back in Brasilia for two days. You know, it was just uh, very remote. So this time also we chose a place which is very well connected. Girona is its own small airport from different destinations in, in Europe. And Barcelona is just uh, nearby. So traveling is very easy. Uh, and also Girona is a small, beautiful city. Uh, with also different housing options, you know, from more than five-star hotels still, um, you know, hostels and even a camping, uh, Airbnb houses. So we have tried to look for a place which is accessible to a broad range of people. Um, and, you know, so, and we really have done an effort to make it accessible to, um, you know, in, indigenous peoples, to uh, students as well and so forth. So... Generally, in the last editions as well, the first one, we had people from 60 countries almost uh, that came, 650 participants. This time we expect more. We expect uh, around 1,000. Um, you know, so, so, yeah, on the website, people can find, find all the, the information. And if people uh, like what they see or are interested but they can't go, is there a way for them to like donate? Or even if they want to support the Ayahuasca Defense Fund, maybe? Yes, yeah, donations obviously are always welcome. We are a, a philanthropic nonprofit organization, so we, we can only exist uh, through donations and, and grants from foundations. Uh, and, you know, so we've gotten uh, these comments, which we always have gotten in the past as well on, on Facebook, like, you know, how can you charge 240 or, you know, 300 euros for a, for a conference? You're making a lot of money. Uh, and, you know, people just don't realize the cost involved uh, in, in organizing a conference like that. And, 
you know, in our case, we, we even we have simultaneous translation from English to Spanish into to uh, spaces, which is very expensive. Um, you know, all the invited speakers and the costs. So, um, you know, we the conference is not uh, sustainable only with ticket sales. We're doing a lot of fundraising aside. So if people, you know, feel this work is important and they want to contribute, you know, the, the donations help us, you know, to fund um, this, uh, you know, indigenous strategy to get enough indigenous participation and and all of that. So, you know, those donations are welcome uh, to that. And, you know, the Ayahuasca Defense Fund uh, is always uh, also, you know, we need support of the community in order to also provide our support to the community, you know, which is was the idea when we started the Ayahuasca Defense Fund, was really to gather community resources, expertise, uh, and to really try to tackle this growing um, trend of, of criminalization of Ayahuasca practice. The fact that you don't have it every year, I think it's proof that it's not... Uh, I mean, if you make a lot of money from it, why not do it every year? <laughs> yeah. Actually, the two last editions, we lost money. <laughs> Uh, you know, and and I felt that it was a good investment. And you know, uh, different philanthropists who were present, they they stood up afterwards to help us uh, cover. Um, it's always a it's a big risk to uh, set up an organ a conference like that of that size with that uh, budget. But we feel it's really important, and we really want to you know, if you're going to do it, we want to maximize the impact of it. So that's why we always aim aim high. And make sure that the people that need to be there in the in the debate and who can, you know, partner in the future, uh, you know, in in cultivating those the seeds that we all plant in those conferences. I think that's really the objective for us. No, and um, you know, it's I think as a community, if we we need to be uh, aligned, and an aligned community is a strong community, and that's really what we try to do with these conferences. It's it's really focused on community building, on on bringing together different perspectives, different people, different uh, you know expertise and and capacities, uh, and out of that really develop strategies to move forward in the right direction. And for us, the right direction is not just that some people can have legal you know access to ayahuasca. But that, that these practices really become integrated and, and valued parts of our global society, you know, where they can fulfill their role of alleviating people from suffering, but also inspiring, uh, yeah, more sustainable life on on planet Earth. Great, thank you a lot for taking the time to be on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for for the invitation. Go to iCers.org to find out more about the organization. That's iccers.org. And if you want to attend AYA 2019, just go to ayaconference.com, ayaconference.com. The list of speakers is truly amazing. I hope to see you there. Now, most importantly, I think you should at the very least support the Ayahuasca Defense Fund. So surf over to ayahuascadefense.com. Just listen to Graham Hancock himself, what he has to say about it. The Ayahuasca Defense Fund is about fighting for the fundamental human right of adults to make sovereign decisions about their own consciousness and the right to use ancient and sacred visionary plants and fungi to explore our own consciousness. Please join me in supporting the Ayahuasca Defense Fund. You know, folks, I get a lot of reviews on iTunes, and you are all welcome to leave your own review. 
And if you do, then maybe you'll hear me read yours in the future because I am going to read some of them here in the podcast. For instance, here is a review from someone called Eschatonic. Takes a few episodes. One of the most endearing things about the podcast is the memoir-like quality it begins to take after a few episodes. Although not all episodes speak to me, the ones that do are truly a gift. Thank you for all you do. Well, thanks for those nice words. Memoir-like quality. Well, perhaps that's true. It is my life after all, and uh, it's my life in audio format, you could say. Somewhat edited and condensed, of course, and I'm just glad someone else seems to enjoy it. If you yourself enjoy this podcast, then please consider becoming a Patreon and support the podcast with a few bucks a month. That would really, really help out, and most importantly, inspire me to do better and better episodes. As a Patreon, there are plenty of perks as well. So just go to patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist. To end this episode, I'll play a track by Car Seat Headrest called Romantic Theory. The track is from the album Monomania. I discovered this band while doing this podcast many years ago. And now they've actually managed to get a record deal, which makes me happy. Check out their music over at carseatheadrest.bandcamp.com. Next Sunday, we are going to consider the intelligence of nature. See you then. Freedom is in the mind.
la la la